Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, my name. I'm not Matthias Roberts, as you know. What? I know. Like, um, we. Oh my gosh. Do you guys know the story? Can I tell a story about tell you? Tell a story, please. We were at the first time Matthias comes to Wild Goose Festival. We're having a grand old time. We're like hot and sticky out there, wearing our floppy hats and our short shorts. Really having a great it's time. It's in North Carolina in the middle of summer. Yeah, so it's humid, sticky, and racist. It's like the worst. You know, the worst trifecta that you could have. Yep. Um, we're out there, and Matthias comes up to me, like we're drinking a beer, and he's like, You're never going to believe what happened to me. I'm like, Okay, what happened? And he says, This man comes up to me, and he says, oh, I'm just so thankful for your work. And what you are doing in the world. And just like, it just, I didn't think that you were going to be here, but it makes so much sense that you're here. And Matthias, of course, is just like, oh my God, thank you. That is so Pretty kind of you to say. Right? Yeah. You know, humbling moment. And it's like, can I take a picture with you? He was like, can I, t- can I get a selfie with you? And then he says. I was like, yeah, sure. I'm gonna, I want you to finish it. <laughs> so, he starts, so he holds up his camera. And as he's taking the selfie with me, I'm like posing his mind. He's like, I can't believe I'm getting a selfie with Bobby Burke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, and, so, and yeah. I like the, the selfie is like me looking at him with like shock horror. <laughs> like, it's like, it's and like, I said, I have some bad news. Yeah. Um, the worst, the best slash worst part is, is this was not the only time that this happened while we were at Wild Goose Festival. No, it happened multiple um, times. But if you are in the room for the Queerology live show slash Beyond Shame book launch party extravaganza, you've made it to the right place. Thanks um, for coming. Yeah. So what, what's going to happen now is I'm going to do the intro to the show. Um, and then I'll let you take it away. You Sweet. can run the show because Sounds you're the boss. Yeah. Cool. So thank you all for coming to this. So let's just give Matthias a hand real quick. So you guys, I'll gush on air. Um, are we recording in the back? Rock and roll. Okay. Silence. Hey friends, this is Dolly Parton, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. This is like a hundred billionth episode in. Mm. Woo! Live at QCF! Yeah! This is not Dolly Parton. I know you people out there listening are shocked, but um, uh, this is Kevin Garcia, and I'm here with uh, the lovely, talented, and beautiful Matthias Roberts in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to talk about... The thing that you did? The thing that I did. You wrote a book. Yeah, the last two years of my life. Ugh. Yeah. So Matthias Roberts, um, uh, before you get into it, I yeah. just want to say, in front of God and everyone, I've loved you since the day that I met you. No, um, I'm really proud of you. Thank you. I'm really, really proud of you. Like, this is something that you've talked about for a long time, and you, f- you fucking did it, man. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Just, I want to say kudos sure. to you, and I just want to say... I already know, like, so many people have, like, tagged saying, like, this book has, like, been, like, rocking their world. Um, do not miss out on this, guys. Tag it. Share your friends. Because, like, here's the deal also. As queer authors and creators, we don't get the platforms that everyone else does. So we have to do it ourselves. So put it on the social media and don't be lazy, okay? <laughs> um, and now I'm going to stop talking and let you take over your podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's good to see all of your smiling faces. Um, I did want to say, we are in the Brian M. Eckstein podcast stage. Brian um, was someone way back when QCF was still GCN. There was a podcast that he and Justin Lee did called GCN Radio. Um, And that was like, maybe, I don't know for sure, but it was maybe the first ever kind of queer spirituality podcast, queer Christian podcast 
ever out there. I remember listening to it when I was deep in the closet. Mm. And so it really is an honor to kind of, um, he, Brian has since passed away. Um, and this, this podcast stage is to honor him, um, and the work that he, that he did with Justin kind of pioneering this space. So huge honor. Yeah. Um, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> the way tonight's going to go, I'm going to do a little bit of a reading from the book and then Kevin and I are going to have a conversation about, I'm not quite sure what, probably, Sexuality and shame, most likely. Um, and There's a book <laughs> you <yeah>. don't say. <laughs> and then uh, we'll do a QA and a uh, and then have a signing. So that's the lay of the land for tonight. Um, and, if you and then after that, someone's going to buy this guy a drink because he deserves it. <laughs> Sounds lovely. It's probably going to be me. <laughs> Yeah, so let's start. Um, my my new book it releases on Tuesday. Uh, so my publisher actually sent a bunch of early release copies. I have a hundred copies here, um, early just for QCF, which was really nice of them. Um, Beyond shame, creating a healthy sex life on your own terms. And the book is really about for those of us who grew up within purity culture or kind of more repressive faith based sexual ethics. Um, there's a lot of sexual shame there. So how do we work with the sexual shame we've been given? And then how do we construct more expansive sexual ethics while still holding on to values? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I stay pretty loose, and you'll hear this in some of what I'm reading, in defining, like, I don't define what those values are, because I believe that's up to us to kind of decide what are our values. Um, but I do think that there are ways and things that we can do to guide us into how we live those values out. And, and that's more of what this, this book is. Mm. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from chapter one, uh, and then we'll chat. Let's do it. Yeah. How does that sound? Good. Okay. <laughs> so this is from the introduction. I still call it chapter one because that's what it was originally, but they turned it into an introduction. So it's a lot. Publishers. Read it. Don't skip the introduction. Yeah, don't it's skip the front end matter. It's very important. <laughs> um, which is, is titled "Don't Look: Sex, Shame, and Faith." Cover your eyes, Matt. My mom's voice is etched in my memory, prompting an almost automatic response anytime I see a Victoria's Secret ad, and I don't <laughs> even like girls. That's the first thing I remember learning about sex. Cover your eyes. A kiss on TV, a billboard for a sex shop, the Rockettes. As a little boy, I would squeeze my eyes tight, turning my head away, wanting to make sure my mom knew I wasn't looking. Sometimes I would catch her glancing at my dad, making sure he was looking away too. He wasn't. I knew from an early age that we should not look at such things. Bodies, flesh, and nakedness, all those were off limits. Dirty. As if even looking at them would somehow make us dirty too. As if squeezing my eyes tight would delay my inevitable sexual development and my quote-unquote purity would remain intact. I'm not sure if my sisters were given the same instruction when shirtless dudes came on TV. I certainly didn't look away. (laughs) (laughs) But my parents told them other things. Instead of covering their eyes, they had to cover their bodies. They were given instructions on how to cover themselves to keep their brothers in Christ from stumbling, as if it were all my sister's responsibility. How can a young man keep his way pure? Mm. By requiring every woman around him to wear a flower sack. (laughs) I think girls in long dresses are hotter, a guy in my youth group said. It leaves more to the imagination. I nodded along as if I knew what he was talking about. One of the most recognizable markers of shame is turning away. Covering your eyes, 
turning your face, saying to the world, I don't want you to look at me and I don't want to look at you. Here's a fundamental truth. Shame makes us turn away. When we feel its flesh, we automatically look down or to the nearest exit or anywhere but towards its source. We seek to cover ourselves and put as much distance as possible between the shame and us, especially if we're in the presence of other people. I was taught to have these same reactions when a woman wearing a swimsuit appeared on a billboard. Years later, I realized how troubling it was that I was taught to respond to seeing a woman's body in a way that mimics, mimics the classic expression of shame. It wasn't a natural response. I remember being confused and sometimes yelling back at my mom, why? It made no sense to me that I shouldn't look at people's bodies, but the aversion of my eyes gradually became involuntary. By the time I started sneaking off into the men's underwear aisle in Walmart, <laughs> a shame response was already ingrained in me. I would keep my eyes down on the way there, not even glancing at the bras, imagining that if I were to make eye contact with a woman shopping in that section, she'd loudly scold just like my mom, don't look, close your eyes. But when I reached the men's section, I'd slowly bring my eyes up and stare at all the models with curiosity and desire. One day when I was around 11 years old, studying the man on a five-pack of Fruit of the Loom boxer briefs, it clicked. <laughs> this is what other guys feel for women. This is why I wasn't supposed to look at them. These feelings, the beginnings of my conscious sexuality, were emerging. And I knew this was what my parents were trying to teach me how to control. I felt dirty. Doubly so, because on the heels of that realization, I recognized I wasn't even feeling the right kind of dirty feelings. Instead of directing my curiosity and longing towards women as I was supposed to, everything was focused on guys. I began to avert my eyes from men's bodies too, but I found it to be much more difficult. I kept sneaking glances, returning for a longing look that I'm sure my mom caught a time or two. In the aisles of t-shirts and boxers, I began to go to war with my body. Mm. Skipping forward a couple pages. <clears throat> All shame is insidious, but I believe that sexual shame holds a special significance. Shame targets the very core of who we are, and the ways we experience sexuality also exist in those core places. This is why sexual shame can feel so debilitating, and how it can have such far-reaching effects in our lives. If we're told that the ways we're wired to experience love and connection and belonging are wrong, that belief has an impact on all the most important areas of our lives. If we're taught from an early age that sex is bad, then we believe our sexual drives must be bad too. If our sexual drives are bad, and if we find we can't control them, we can't, then there must be something fundamentally wrong with us. Shame runs freely in these spaces. We begin to split ourselves off, finding ways to manage both our sexual drives and the shame that comes with experiencing them. Things get unhealthy quickly. Sexual shame ruins us. I wrote this book because I believe it's important to move beyond shame to a healthier, more life-affirming view of sex and sexuality, especially in our faith communities. Sexuality is tied intimately to who we are as people, and it influences almost every single aspect of our lives. Can you tell I'm a Freudian? But, yeah. <laughs> if shame can establish a stronghold within our sexuality, it can do a pretty good job of mucking up our lives. Shame thrives in secrecy, and since many faith communities shun discussions of sexuality except in quiet spaces behind closed doors, sexual shame has been able to grow exponentially in the lives of many people I know. 
in our faith communities, more and more people are waking up to the harms of purity culture, and many of us suffer from overwhelming shame around our sex lives or lack of sex lives. Mm. We don't know what we're doing, and we feel shame about that. Or we do know what, we do, what we're doing, and we've been told that because we have sexual experience, no one will love us, and we feel shame about that. We feel shame about the people we're attracted to and when. We feel shame day in and day out, and it seems no one is talking about it, leaving us all alone to try to figure things out. Perhaps most deeply troubling to me is the fact that so many of us don't know what we believe about sex. We've probably been told that having sex before marriage will literally ruin our lives, yet many of us, after having sex with someone, wake up wondering, what was so wrong about that? Mm. We believe that we should feel shame at moments when we don't, and we suspect that maybe we shouldn't feel shame when we do. This book is for all of us. I've spent the past five years talking to people about sex and sexuality, and I've found some common themes. Many of us believe that there is a healthy way to express our sexuality. We can also see that there are unhealthy ways, some of which we may have experienced, but we're deeply uncomfortable with the moralistic categories that our faith communities often use to define sex. Too many people have tried to regulate our sexuality and sex lives with categories of sin, yet we can't quite shake the feeling that there is something about sex that is, at the very least, worth thinking about deeply. Mm-hmm. I see many clients and friends who feel they have to figure things out all by themselves because they don't know where to turn. The truth is that people get weird in conversations about sex. Mm -hmm. We feel so much shame. We don't know what to do with it. This book is a place you can bring your shame and we can think about it together. I don't pretend to know what your values are. And my goal in these pages is not to try to impose values. That's your work to do. As you make your way through this book, you might find it helpful to talk to someone about what comes up. And ultimately, what we're moving towards is a life lived abundantly beyond shame. Instead of covering our eyes and hiding from everything sexual, we will learn to stop turning away from our bodies, our sexuality, and our feelings, and turn toward knowing ourselves and finding freedom. I hope that by doing this work, we can come closer to embracing the abundant life Jesus came to give us. Not a life defined by rules and moralistic requirements, but a life that is genuinely life-giving. Thank you. Hated it. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> yeah, zero stars on Goodreads for yeah, that. <laughs> I already have a one-star review on Goodreads. Wow! Yeah, yeah, from a person who hasn't even read it. So. I mean, yeah. well, at least you can be just like, you know, everyone who read the book loved it. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Might just be me, so but far. I'm going to love we'll it. See. We'll kidding. see what Peter thinks when he writes his yeah. review. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, Peter's going to come up and roast him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I relate so much to the story in the introduction of Cover Your Eyes because um, I remember specifically growing up myself uh, having moments in my living room because, like, my dad was one of those, like, bougie people who always got, like, the bigger everything and the first everything. So we had, like, the first DVD player and the first big screen TV that was, like, literally, like, ginormous. just a big old box. Um, and I remember on that particular television is where I saw Janet Jackson's nipple fall out during the Super Bowl. Mm. And my parents had TiVo and backed it up and told me and my brothers to close my eyes. But then they watched it again. And I'm just like, <laughs> what? what's happening? Yeah, so I just, I think there's so many of us who relate to that initial thing of like, the body's bad. You can't look at it. But when you get to a certain age, you can do it. And so... I think what it brings up in so many of us is like 
this feeling of I am young or mm-hmm. like I don't know what I'm doing and it stuns us in so many ways. So I wonder if you could talk about like a little bit about that, that first part of just like that initial shame of like feeling like you're not enough and also at the same time feeling like your story is too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think especially as kids, we want to look, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, it's, an, it's a natural response of curiosity. So that that kind of looking, that wanting to see what's what's out there, wanting to see something that at that point most likely isn't even sexualized yet, right? Like mm-hmm. we may experience something of sexuality within ourselves um, because I, again, since I'm a Freudian, I do believe like we experience sexuality from birth, but it looks very different at birth than when it comes up again in adolescence. So we don't know what's even what's even kind of running our curiosity but it's a lot more innocent if we want to use that language than what it might be Mm -hmm. when we're 13, 14, whatever. Yeah. Um, And so when we have, I mean, in in my case with my parents, when we have parents who are so adamantly, and I think out of good intentions, right? Like I, I don't think my mom's intentions were, bad. I don't think she was trying to shame me. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's what ended up happening. We're told, don't look, you can't look at this, this, you're not allowed to see this until you're older. We start internalizing like this, this must be bad. Mm -hmm. And so then when we start feeling those feelings that are like turning us towards Mm -hmm. (laughs) actually wanting to look and be like, Oh, I'm actually really fascinated by this. Mm -hmm. That, like I said, that war, that war within our bodies starts opening up. Um, yeah. And it, it's it's one that often stays with us for yeah. the rest and, of our lives. And we think it's normal. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing, because it is our normal mm-hmm. for so many of us walking around with these, uh, you know, these open wounds, or at least, like, you know, that we've packed enough, like, scripture on top of them to, like, you know, stop the bleeding for now, but like, it's getting infected. Mm-hmm. There was this idea of, uh, that came up for me, just, like, around like when you had that moment with your mother, just like a loss of innocence of just like, I have done something bad. I'm, I am. And I can't stop myself from doing it. Um, and I wonder within that, within your own work of working through your own shame, um, how much of like that idea of just like being able to unpack your childhood stuff played into forming your healthy sexuality. Mm. It's continually forming. Mm. Like, <laughs> it, it feels a little bit weird sitting here having written a book on it, realizing, like, this is, and I make this point in the book, like, this is work we continue to do always. So right. to say, to, I, I'm not claiming that I have a quote-unquote healthy sexuality now. <laughs> I don't know that that's something that we ever necessarily arrive at, right? Yeah, it's a process. Um, but even as I was even as I was writing this chapter, mm-hmm. that that realization of like I was taught the exact same shame response to turn away. So what I said, like the the natural response to shame is to turn away, to hide our faces. And that's exactly what my mom taught me to do. I hadn't put those two things together until I was like writing that paragraph and was like, oh holy shit. Like <laughs> it's like, oh hello. Hello childhood this trauma. I've missed you there. Ingrained in me. And <laughs> I think, like, to your question, oftentimes to really work with the shame that comes up within us, 
um, so much of it is rooted within what we were taught as children, whether directly or indirectly from our parents. Um, and so it does require going back and remembering mm-hmm. those stories and right. telling those stories and, and speaking them into existence. And, and I believe we have to do that work in relationship. Like we, we, it's not work that we can necessarily do alone. We have to do it with other people mm-hmm. within communities um, or with a therapist. Um, sometimes even a, a journal will help, but it, but it needs yeah. to be externally processed in a way and then given back to us mm-hmm. um, so that we can kind of intake a, a revised version, a yeah. healthier version. Um, yeah. yeah. Something in the Gospel of Thomas that I love, it says, um, bring forth that which is within you, mm. for that which is within you will save you, but that which you do not bring forth will destroy you. And so I think about that all the time. It's like there's this, if I do not bring forth what is like what God has put in me, my God-given sexuality, like give voice to my God-given desires, I can, like, it'll destroy me. And like we all kind of know that too. It's like when we have all this like pent up desire and like all this energy with no healthy way of expressing it, it will express itself no matter like whether or not we do it. So I'm wondering for you, like, um, as you like, what was the starting point for you to start bringing uh, these two things together, your sexuality over here, along with, um, and not just sexuality, like who you're attracted to, but just like having like having sex and shit. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you move? How do you move from like that being a, a shameful thing to something that is life giving and healthy and enjoyable? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. Yep. <laughs> And, and also, for some people, it's not, right? Like, some people don't grow up in, in this world having to do that kind of work. Um, and and I, I still think, like, I mean, even in, in non-religious, like, psychological literature, like, sexuality and shame have been tied to, together since the beginning of psychology. Like, Freud, one of his first papers is mm-hmm. on sex and shame. Um, so... I think it's almost inevitable that we experience shame around sexuality in one way or another. Um, but this particular kind of locus of shame within purity culture and that mm. having to kind of overcome some hurdles in order to be even able to kind of entertain this idea that there could be something healthy about mm-hmm. sex. Um, massive amounts of work. And and you're yeah. right. I think for me where it started was, was realizing starting to see the ways that I had internalized my shame mm-hmm. and where it then starts kind of bleeding out the, the edges, um, kind of what you're talking about, that yeah. sense of like, wait a second, like this certainly isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so what is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you discussed in the book, um, three different paradoxes that I think really speak to how we're kind of like navigating sex uh, and sexual ethics as, uh, as a people group, and those are, if you turn in your books, uh, <laughs> if you turn in your Bibles, um, sex is healthy and risky. Sex makes us vulnerable and helps us avoid vulnerability. Sex is safety, and safety is not guaranteed. And then the fourth one, so it's four paradoxes. Mm-hmm. We will get things wrong and right at the same time. Um, I wanted to hone in on that second one. Makes us vulnerable and helps us avoid vulnerability. Because as someone who is... Uh, 
Okay, let me tell you the story. This is how long me and him have known each other. A few years ago, he sent me this book called... In- He's like, hey, I want to send you a book. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he wants to send me something, a nice book. He sent me this book called Insecure in Love, How Anxious Attachment Style like is Ruining Your Life and What You Can Do About It. And I was like... Listen, here's a true story. I never picked it up, didn't read it. Until recently when my therapist called me out on it. It's like, no, Kevin, that's what you do. And I'm like, that's what I'm doing? Oh. Um, but I want to hone in on that one. What does it mean that sex is vulnerable? Like it, it, uh, it makes you vulnerable, but also helps you avoid vulnerability. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, that's like the nature of paradox, right? And that's what I, I mean, in, in this book, I really highlight the, the fact that there are a lot of things that seem to contradict each other that do contradict each other inherent within sexuality. So this vulnerability question, like, and I, I use the definition of vulnerability from a researcher named Gabriel Mate, um, mm. who is a um, MD up in Vancouver, BC. Um, he defines vulnerability as the capacity to be wounded. Um, and I really like how simple that definition is because it just kind of lays it out on the table. Yeah. Like if Yeah, that one did me in just now. I was like, wow, that's right? deep. Right? Like we talk about vulnerability all the time, but this idea of the capability, the capacity to be wounded mm-hmm. means that we're not protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're if we're making ourselves vulnerable, that means we're giving up protection and opening ourselves to the potentiality of being wounded. Um and in some ways, sex and sexuality, like, is some of the most vulnerable things that we can do with another person. Mm. Not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually. Um, right. There's there's a level of opening ourselves up to another person or persons um, that can bring about profound wounding. Um, at the same time... We can also use sexuality and use sex as a way to completely cut ourselves off from our internal emotional experiences, right? So we can jump into bed with someone because we don't want to deal with our bullshit um, or because of the dopamine high makes us feel better. Um, and so in, in the same way, as in some ways we're, we're opening ourselves up to vulnerability, we're also cutting ourselves off from it. Mm. Um, and so there's, there is a huge paradox there. Um, it makes us vulnerable, we can also use it pretty easily to just avoid all vulnerability and not work on our own stuff. Um, yeah. That's, that's what that chapter is about. Yeah, for those of you at home, my face is like twisted because like he's reading my mail right now. But that is, I mean, honest to God, like I'm somebody who like, I'm super sex positive. I like having sex with people. And also I know that like it is so much easier for me to just, you know, meet someone, have a lovely time and then, you know, two weeks later when they want a little bit more attention, I'm just like, oh my God, see you. I don't have to feel anxious and nervous and I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is exactly like the way that you put it out there is like, I also know that like this is sex has also been the thing that has helped me heal so many of my, like my relationship with my body. Mm -hmm. And this also, this is not to shade casual sex. If that's something that you're into, Um, this is something I'm learning about myself. So just take everything I say as descriptive, not prescriptive. And I think that's the big thing about values in general is that what is good for myself may not be good for another person. Mm-hmm. So when constructing like your, let me ask about you, like if you want to talk about your own personal values, sure. how did you start finding those? What are your values? 
What should someone look for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to take a classical ther- a therapist stance here and say I'm actually not going to share what my values are because I don't know that that would necessarily be beneficial for this conversation. Rock and um, roll. Because I, I don't want to prescribe values. Mm. Um, but I think I think within the conversation about sexual ethics, um, there needs to be space both for the values that we might consider to be very conservative, um, some of them maybe, um, and space for other values, right? Um, because I think sexual, sex and sexuality, and, and I unpack this a little bit more in the book, it, what is healthy for one person may not be healthy for another person and vice versa. And so if, if it's, it's a very individualized thing, so as we start doing work around what our values are, um, and start defining what those values are and then start working with these paradoxes that are in the book and working with our coping mechanisms and working with the lies that we've been told about sex and sexuality, I, I believe that is going to put us on the path towards a healthier sexuality. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost inevitable that you're going to move towards a healthier sexuality. Yeah. But the last chapter is like we will get things right, we'll get things wrong at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's an ever-going process, and our values may change. Our ethics may change as we have more experience. We may realize that we were wrong about something that we thought we were very right about, about the way something yeah. impacts us. So all of that to say, it's a lot more complex, mm-hmm. I think, than saying this is right, this is wrong, mm-hmm. and here's why. Um, sexuality is is a very complicated thing Um, and and we have to learn I think how to navigate that for ourselves Mm -hmm. Um, because that's the only true ethic that we'll be able to live out of is one that we Mm -hmm. own for ourselves right Yeah. something I have tried to incorporate for myself is my a willingness to be wrong Mm. Um, I think there is a fear of like being wrong. It's like, Oh, I'm going to be wrong. Cause like you can be wrong and then you can change your mind. Mm-hmm. And you know, one might say like, you can be wrong and then repent, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for myself, um, I am one of the, well, I'll say like, maybe it's, I need to, I need to be more of a person who's to this, but like the willingness to be wrong and the willingness to apologize when, especially like within sex, it's like, you know, I have been the jerk in a relationship that has, you know, dated someone for two weeks and then realized I got in over my head. I have been the person who has been the ghost. Um, I don't want to be the ghost anymore. So now typically I try to, you're fine, please. Um, but it, it is that, that feeling of like, even when we mess up though, that does not mean we're bad. Right. That's the thing. Like, uh, when I started out dating, like I had a very serious relationship and there's this very weird pressure we have in like queer Christian land of just like this relationship's got to work out. Uh, otherwise the enemy wins. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just like if this relationship doesn't work out, then this is like proof that like, um, you know, non-affirming theology is correct. And homosexuals cannot actually have romance because it's all perversion. Um, but that doesn't have to be true. We don't have to believe what is not true anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of the work. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you one more question. Okay. What is, uh, what was, what was like the hardest part about pulling this book out of your head? Mm. <laughs> well, that was the work I had to do <laughs> while writing it. 
because mm. like the internal work. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, because it's a sense of like, I, I think, I mean, anytime you do like a creative project or write, let's say specifically, I don't know if y'all who write have this experience, but like you're writing words down and then you read what you wrote and you're like, if that's true, <laughs> oh, am I living means, up to my own book right. that I'm writing? <laughs> if I believe that this is true, then has profound implications. What what does that mean? Um, and often, then I would sit there and look at it, and sometimes I'd be like, oh, "No, I don't think that is true." Actually, <laughs> and delete it. <laughs> um, but then other times, I would sit there and and be like, "I do believe this is true." And then I'd go see my therapist. <laughs> That's it. And I'm like, well, great. So, <laughs> yeah, that was definitely the hardest part. Yeah, it, it's almost like um, one of my friends said, like, being a human on the internet is like having a front row seat to your own evolution. Mm-hmm. And, man, if that ain't, like, looking back on myself a few years ago, god damn. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It has now come to the portion of the evening. We want to do a lovely Q&A situation. So I'm going to put the mic... Uh, actually, I'm going to pass my mic. And um, you are going to run it around the room and say your name and your pronouns and where you're from. For fun. Any questions from the audience? One. Hello. Uh, my name is Bobby. I go by he, him. I'm from like the Pittsburgh area. Not nice. actually Pittsburgh, but you know. Um, I had my first sexual experience this October, mm. and it was horrifying. No. <laughs> it's like nothing Nothing he did was wrong. I was just like in my head the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like uh, one of my main things is like body image issues, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to ask someone like uh, – I forgot where I was going for a second. Sorry. Um, I was. Just, I just wanted to ask someone who's like so prevalent uh, in like the po- uh, body positivity movement to like. I <laughs> this. I don't know how to word my question without it coming off like, "How do I love myself?" Um, how do you view yourself in a positive light without it making it be about you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I get you. Mm-hmm. And is that question directed towards Kevin or yeah, towards sorry. me? Yeah, no, you're fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, every single morning, I look at the, I stand naked in front of the mirror, and I tell myself how I'm beautiful. I'm dead serious. Um, and that is something I started because one of my friends said that's what she did, and I said that sounds like f- terrifying, but also it could be a lot of fun. Um, and it is an exercise because I will look at myself, and I'm like, not, I'm not always loving it, but it's like when I notice those thoughts. In my head, it's like, oh, you know, you've got acne scars on your hips because you, like, you were gross, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, it gets all the negative self-talk. And at the very bottom of it, there is my talking self, my higher self, whatever, like the part of me that's actually dope. That says, actually, you're doing pretty well for yourself. Like, you made it to the gym three times this week. You know, you're, like, you're eating when you're hungry. You're resting when you need to. Like, you're doing the best you can. That's awesome. And I literally give myself a pep talk. Um, and at first it feels super silly to like look at yourself and tell yourself that you love yourself, but your body can hear it. Um, so that's one of my practices. And the other part is like, anytime I do feel poorly about my body, especially like in a sexual situation, um, I allow myself grace to feel that like, rather than saying, don't feel bad about you, stupid idiot. You should feel positive and encouraged. 
Um, I'm just like, yeah, I didn't feel, you didn't feel your best. That's okay, Kevin. A lot of people feel that way. So it's, it's, it's reminding myself I'm not alone in these feelings. So many people feel weird about being naked in the bedroom. Um, so if you can remind yourself, like, you're not the first person to feel it, you will feel it a lot in your life. And actually, I'll say this. You don't have to feel it as often. Start with that little thing, just saying, like, I love myself. Yeah, that's what I would do. Hi, Grayson Hester, he, him, his. In your studies and experiences with purity culture, did you find, um, like looking back after having written the book, are there any positives to purity culture that you could point out? This is more just like a gotcha question. <laughs> but I am genuinely interested because I, I don't believe anything is totally bad. Right, right. Maybe a few things are, but mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good gotcha question. Um, I think, you know, in in some ways, I think it... <laughs> I'm thinking, sometimes it takes me a while to think. Um, so purity culture, I mean, really is, was a reaction to the 60s and 70s, right? Um, and kind of the free love movement. Um, and I think in some ways it, it, it did bring in or maybe back in an element of getting, this is going to be really positive, like a really generous reading. Um, <laughs> it did bring us back into having conversations about sex with a level of intention (laughs) that is a generous read yeah (laughs) does that conclude your answer that's that's my answer (laughs) (laughs) thanks like it was mostly bad yeah Yeah. it was pretty bad hi i'm tyler Tyler. Um, Tyler. he him his uh, from lynchburg virginia um, mm-hmm. Come on, Liberty. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, a lot of a lot of shame work and a lot of what you're talking about so far is um, very much like individual work. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you promote um, like non shaming uh, in in uh, with regard to sexuality like in a community? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a really good question because I do in the book I really do focus in on on kind of individual personal shame. I do argue we can only fight shame within community, um, but that question of how do we do that as a community, make that a value, is one that I don't get into in the book. Um, and you know, it's probably a, a fairly Western idea, but I, at least I think in our culture community starts with individuals, right? So if, if we're all doing our own work around shame, there will be a level of that work will be reflected within the community. Mm-hmm. That's one way. It's a tall order, though, too. Um, and another way is I, I wonder how we can hold each other accountable mm-hmm. to the, the work that we are all doing. So that, that's another way of kind of saying that we have to be doing our own work. But what does it look like on a community level 
to bring in accountability to how do we talk about sex and sexuality? How do we talk to each other when we say things about sex and sexuality that are shaming? Do we shame back? Do we cancel? <laughs> like, do we blast them on Twitter? Or or do we come to each other in ways that promote healing, um, in ways that invite people into community um, and, and give different, new, non-shaming experiences? Um, that is work that can only happen face-to-face -face with other people. Um, so it's, it's vital that we do that um, and that we hold each other accountable to that in ways that interrupt the shame narratives. Um, yeah. I'm Jonathan from Oklahoma, and uh, glad to hear you, and glad to hear that you've finished this book. We're looking forward to reading it. Um, it was a beautiful answer you just gave about accountability for the community. Now, we're speaking here at the Q Christian Conference, right. so and there's grand diversity within the, the mm -hmm. church, so mm -hmm. we know that not everyone's going to come to this from the same background, but we do share the same scripture, so we know in Christ there is no condemnation, mm -hmm. which would be shame, mm -hmm. but there is conviction, right? and that's that continuum towards accountability. Just address the where that might or can be healthy mm -hmm. to keep us in line. Absolutely. Conviction is good, perhaps, or not. And right. I'll let you address that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, my mind just went a bunch of different places, so I'll stick with one track. <laughs> I, I talk in the book, to, to use a little bit of different language, I would put conviction in the realm of guilt. Um, so... These thoughts are not original to me. There are many other shame researchers, including Brene Brown, but there are others as well who, who make a distinguishment between shame and guilt. Guilt being, I did something bad, versus shame, I am something bad, right? Um, conviction slash guilt is an emotion, a bodily experience that automatically makes us want to go to our community and resolve it, right? It brings us into community. I did something wrong. I harmed someone. Most of us, not everyone, but most of us then have the experience of, I want to resolve that. And we know that we have to go to that person, go to that community to do that reconciliation work, right? Whereas shame, condemnation, is an experience of turning away. I am something bad. I am not worthy of community. I'm not worthy of these people. So I'm going to go over here and never talk to them again. Um, one of us, one of them brings us into relationship. One of us take, one of them takes us out of it. Um, but, yeah. We have time for probably one more before we're hitting the 50 minute mark. Great. So let's do one more. Yeah. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Steven from New York City. My pronouns are he, him, his. And uh, Grayson's question actually made me think about this. But so, <laughs> uh, so it seems like we're operating between these two polarities, mm -hmm. almost between hookup culture and purity culture. Mm -hmm. And it, we have a lot of pain that's caused in each of those. So my question is, how do we navigate these two polarities because like in hookup culture people get seriously hurt mm -hmm. um and we don't take sex as seriously as you do in purity culture right um but like i said you have people hurt on both extremes so how do you navigate those totally i to just 
speak briefly to what's in the book. Um, I believe oftentimes when we're existing within those two polarities, so either existing within deeply within purity culture, I call that shamefulness. Um, I don't love the term hookup culture, um, but to use to use that term, sometimes, oftentimes, um, when we're participating kind of on that other, for lack of a better word, extreme, um, I call that shamelessness. Okay. They're both defense mechanisms. Um, and they're both ways of not acknowledging the shame that's actually within us. And so the question then, and I get into this, like there's, there's chapters about this in the book. Um, the question is then, how do we then recognize the shame that we're working out of and then work on that shame? Sometimes that doesn't mean our behavior changes, Right. Our, we may, in our sexual values, may have values that say, this is how I want to live out my sexual experiences. But the question is, what are they motivated by? Is it motivated by shame? Or is it coming from a place of groundedness within our values and health? Um, mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your questions, y'all. I have, uh, I'm so pleased to have shared this time with you on Queerology. Um, if, uh, if you haven't already, please go to patreon.com slash Queerology and become a supporting member so that you can make this stuff happen. It is, uh, it's slash Matthias Roberts. Slash Matthias Roberts, sorry. <laughs> We're not really friends, actually, you guys. Um, um, and I'm going to let you introduce the next party. So um, for those of you who are listening on the podcast, thank you for joining us for QCF's live show of a, Not a Tiny Revolution. That's my show. Um, uh, thank you for joining us for Queerology live at QCF. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.